0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China
1: Morning Post. This is the sound of a
2: protest in mainland China. But this is not happening on the streets of Beijing. This is not a protest about democracy or human rights. It is not a protest about environmental disaster or corruption. This is about money. These people are shouting, where is our money? And give us our money back. And they are doing it in Shenzhen, in the foyer of the headquarters of Evergrande, one of the biggest property companies in mainland China. But Chinese investors in Shenzhen are not the only people wanting their money back. Welcome to the latest edition of Inside China. My name is Mimi Lao. Welcome to a week where Chinese investors, subcontractors, home buyers, and banks find they have much in common with banks and investors from the West. As they all ask the same question as those people in Shenzhen. It is a question that right now is worth about 300 billion US dollars. Where is my money? And on top of that, some much bigger questions for the global economy. Is Evergrande too big to fail? And what happens if it does? This will be a very different kind of Inside China podcast that you are used to. It is different because as I am recording this introduction, I don't know how this is going to end. Right now, it is Wednesday. It is a public holiday in Hong Kong for the Mid-Autumn Festival. This means the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is closed, which is only helping to build attention because for the past few days, the global media narrative has sounded something like this.
1: China could be seeing its Lehman Brothers moment, a crisis deepening for its second largest developer. Investors were apprehensive that history was about to repeat itself. Also, real estate is such a powerful Component in the Chinese economy, it's 15 to 20% of GDP, which is massive. The
2: company has huge implications for China's overall economy. Property developers shook investors across Asia and Europe. If Evergrande isn't too big to fail, what happens next? Is this China's Lehman Brothers moment? Will this lead to the kind of global economic meltdown that happened back in September of 2008? Or will the Beijing central government step in and somehow fix this? Right now, no one quite knows. And it's only Wednesday. By the end of this podcast, we're going to have a much better idea. But before we hear from my colleagues here at the South China Morning Post, let me give you an idea just how big Evergrande is and how much debt it owes to companies across China and around the world. Evergrande's core business is buying land, then building apartment towers—millions of flats—in newly constructed high-rises in more than 200 cities across China. They sell these apartments in events, and then build the towers. For the past 20 years, the company has made huge profits as the Chinese real estate market got more and more intense. A growing middle class wanting to move into Chinese cities has filled a red-hot demand for new housing. Evergrande's business model has attracted huge investment from banks across China, as well as many banks and financial institutions from the Western world. But this business model hasn't just hit a perfect storm. It has slammed into a titanic-sized iceberg. Right now, there are hundreds of unfinished apartment towers across China. There are hundreds of thousands of people who bought those flats, wondering what will happen to their money and their dreams of owning a home. There are the companies that are contracted to work on everything from the foundations to the rooftops of these towers and everything in between. There are more than 250 banks and financial institutions waiting to find out how much money they are going to lose on Evergrande. And there is 21 billion US dollars owed to foreign investment firms and banks. And let's not forget, there is more than 120,000 Evergrande employees and many more subcontractors wanting to know if they are going to get paid and if they have a job. So let's start with how Evergrande got here with my colleague Pearl Liu. So Pearl, you've been covering the Evergrande story for the past two years. Can you give us some background to this? How did one of China's largest property developers get to its current crisis now?
0: Yes, I've been covering uh, China property and Evergrande ever since 2019. Their science showing the housing market has turned soured under Beijing's control since 2018, actually. And we've seen that Evergrande reported its first core profit decline in 2019 for the first time since 2016. So that's the first sign. And after that, the company rushed to diversify its business and burned billions of dollars in making electric cars.
2: Take us to the story that you wrote in 2019. What was the first sign you picked up? The
0: decline was after um, Beijing staged a slew of uh, cooling measures.
2: When you say cooling measures, what was it that the Beijing government did to try and stop this housing bubble?
0: Ever since 2018, Beijing has staged a lot of cooling measures, including press cap and limiting the sales procedures. But I think the most important one is um, last year, in August, when Beijing staged um, the so-called Three Red Lines. Basically, choked the developers and dried up their funding access.
2: Mm. Per when you said Three Red Line just then, it sounds like one of those Chinese Communist propaganda slogans. What does that really mean? Can you unpack that for us?
0: So the Three um, Red Lines is a requirement on their leveraging ratios. Um, there are three requirements on their debts. First is their debt-to-asset ratio must be capped at 70%, and its net debt-to-equity ratio must be capped at 100%. And its short-term borrowings should not be larger than their um, cash reserves. So if a developer fails to meet these red lines, in theory, it cannot get new loans from the banks.
2: Which were these three red lines that Evergrande break?
0: Actually, uh, Evergrande has crossed all three, which make it a red tag. And in theory, it cannot borrow new loans from Chinese banks. It cannot borrow new loans, but it can still get loans to repay the old ones.
2: The story has developed tremendously the last few months, and it hit world headlines with the protests at Evergrande head office last week. But can you take us through some of the key developments in this story over the past few months?
0: Actually, early in June, there are already some contractors and suppliers of Evergrande already starting sending messages on uh, Weibo about Evergrande owning their monies and not paying their IOUs. One of the contractors I talked to uh, in June, in Jiangsu, he told me that Evergrande has already had uh, $5 million um, not paying him for months. And back then, when we talked to analysts, they were still thinking probably it is because Evergrande would like to do the deleveraging thing and would like to cut that. But in July, after Evergrande reported some of its improvements in debts, some of its figures turning good, there is a really big moment when a bank in Jiangsu filed to court to froze Evergrande's assets. This is a signal telling the market that the banks are not trusting the company. That's when the panic started to spread.
2: So when you said in July, anxiety started to take off and spread across the country, after what that Jiangsu Bank did, what have you been hearing from your sources and analysts? What are they saying? So after that happened,
0: there are sayings about even though Evergrande is improving its debt figures, it's not paying banks and contractors that Beijing cares a lot. That's why there are so many noises from banks and from uh, onshore financial institutions. Uh, After that, Evergrande has been actively trying to sell its assets, but so far it makes no material progress. That is how Evergrande um, described it in its interim report. And all of a sudden, there were protests broke out across the country against the company's wealth management product, saying that the company is not paying them on time.
2: So that's in September. That's when the protests broke out across the country. After a series of moves launched by the Evergrande to sell this exit, but it's not making material progress. And then people will start are starting not uh, receiving um, their financial returns from the wealth um, uh, um, management um, investment packages. That's when people start to get angry and panic and start protesting across the country to Evergrande's head offices.
0: Yes, that's how panic spread from equity market and bond market to mass markets across China.
2: So there are a lot of videos going online portraying the Everground head office protest in Shenzhen, but we know it's more than that. Can you describe to us how widespread, how angry people are, and How intense are these protests really are?
0: They're not just protests in Shenzhen. they are also protests in Chongqing, in Jiangxi and in Shandong. So people like were crying. They were shouting, asking why their hard-earned money were not getting paid. And for many people, one million, two million, three
2: million are like their lifelong earnings. Fearing that will all be vanished in a second. Yes. So we just covered angry buyers of Evergrande's wealth management products not getting paid for the returns. And we also talked about how the banks are not trusting Evergrande for giving new loans. Also talked about contractors, construction contractors are not getting the money back. You have also spoken to some house buyers, who, people who bought Evergrande properties, and they are angry too. Why is that?
0: They're angry because they're worrying whether they can receive their homes that already paid um, down payments that could amount to um, 45,000 US dollars, and there could, that could be more than that. Um, they're, they're worried because they are seeing that those unfinished towers are suspended and no one was working there.
2: You can just imagine how hauntingly scary for these people when they looked at these empty buildings, concrete buildings, great walls, piling up one after each, each other, and nothing is being done by it. Where do we go from here?
0: So Avagran has two big deadlines in the coming two weeks. Tomorrow it has uh, for interest payment for US dollar bond. And next week, also the interest for US dollar bond.
2: So if Evergrande doesn't come up with that kind of money by deadline, what's going to happen?
0: So there will be defaults. It's Evergrande's first default.
2: So it sounds like the biggest concern is that how the Chinese central government is going to intervene and step in to resolve or not resolve this crisis for Evergrande.
0: Yes, um, that is the biggest question, whether Beijing will step in and to what extent.
2: So what are your sources telling you?
0: So um, Mimi, I, I talk to everyone from equity analysts to fixed income analysts to economists, industry observers, just everyone, no one has a clue. No one knows what is
2: going to happen. We just heard Pearl Leo talk about Evergrande's deadline for Thursday. Well, it is Thursday now, and they are supposed to pay $120 million U.S. million in interest payment by today. But so far, they've only paid a portion of it. I can tell you that there is a lot of tension at the business desk here in the newsroom. And I'm sure the same is happening in the global financial market. Remember, you will get the latest development at StayHappen on scmp.com. And if you've downloaded the SEMP app on your phone, you'll get a news alert for it. But I want to talk about one question we have heard repeatedly this last week. Is this China's Lehman Brothers moment? Technically, it's more of a Fannie Mae or a Freddie Mac moment about financial liquidity. But let me recap about this reference this media framing is about. It's referring to the collapse of the U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers. Back in 2008, their bankruptcy sent shockwaves through America and the world and led to the worst financial crisis in recent history. What some people now refer to as the GFC, the global financial crisis. World headlines are suggesting Evergrande might do the same to China and the global economy. But is this accurate? Let's hear more about this from Zhou Xin. Zhou Xin is a news editor at the South China Morning Post and one of the regulars on the China Geopolitics podcast. But he has been watching closely the development of China macroeconomics. And Evergrande is one of those stories you have been paying a lot of attention to. So, can I just start with this really blunt question, Zhou Xin? Is this China's Lehman Brothers moment as those Western media has portrayed?
1: Uh, thank you, Mimi. That's a question that is oversimplified the, the situation. And in terms of whether China ever grant will start a financial crisis or well, the whole meltdown of Chinese banking system, the answer is no. But certainly the implications could be much deeper and profound, and uh, we cannot underestimate the uh, significance of this, uh, uh, this cigar. And I think, yes, in terms of influence and impact, it will have like huge and long-term uh, influence, just as four of Lehman Brothers has being on the, on, the, on the financial system in, the, in Wall Street. So in very simple terms, let's say China Evergrande is a product of China's growth model in the last 20 or even 30 years. As we all know, Premier, former Premier Zhu Rongji started this privatization of China's property market in the later 1990s. And then China Evergrande was created 25 years ago. You know, the, the growth of China Evergrande fits nicely into uh, China's uh, booming kind of private property market. And this is actually a secret of China's growth. You know, uh, Overnight, lands that have been laying there for thousands of years suddenly become property, become assets. It is uh, companies like China Evergrande that is at the nexus of uh, China's uh, high-speed growth. And it relates to the local Chinese government, because local Chinese government suddenly finds like okay, we are actually sitting on lots of money, you know, that's the land. Let's uh, sell the land to the property developers you know, so that we have the money, we can build up roads and the more uh, central business district and uh, completely change China's urban landscape in a very short span of period of time. And at the same time, on the end, it's millions of Chinese households, you know, used to do the living flats assigned by the government. If you work for the Chinese government, if you work for the state-owned enterprise, you don't pay your own money to buy a flat. It's always like it's something being given by the Chinese government. But now with this uh, market, you know, everyone just to go into the property market and buy their own. I think the ownership of houses in Chinese cities is almost like
2: 80%. 90%.
1: 90%. Oh, my goodness. And then, of course, the money is not totally from the house savings. Maybe at the very beginning, it's uh, mostly the savings. But increasingly, it's mortgages. So it's uh, money from the, from the banks. So it's very interesting, you know, the land, the money, the people all combine together. So it's, uh, it's a China Evergrande that is playing this uh, role. Let's do not use the word that China is China's unique way of uh, capitalism development. But it, to some extent, yes, it is uh, using the corporate way to capitalize the land and the money and the households, uh, very basic amount of housing.
2: Thank you for the answer, Zhouxin. So it sounds like the growth of Evergrande is closely linked to many important fragments, including economic growth of local city government, the livelihood of many house owners in China, and also vital to China's uh, financial system. So, how is this being a test for Xi Jinping trying to put a control of this ever growing housing bubble in China?
1: Uh, well, that's a very good question. Actually, uh, you know, Mimi, if you pay attention, even six years ago, there's a front page kind of editorial on People's Daily. It's by an authoritative figure. Uh, That figure has never been identified, but there are lots of gossips that it's coming from Liu He, the the top economic aide for President Xi. So in that article, it's mentioned very, very clearly that, you know, the trees cannot grow as high as into the sky, which means the debt cannot always go forever and uh, the housing prices cannot go forever. So from that article and later, we're coming from this uh, China's famous policy saying the houses are for people to live in, not to speculate on. Apparently, they want to try to say, hey, this is a public, some kind of public goods. It's not a financial investment products at least on a national, nationwide level. But however, it's easy to say than to, to be done because the property price, so much has already been developed and so much being been at the stake. As you just mentioned, you know, China's banking system, Chinese local governments, Chinese households, there is no clear alternative for this property development. Imagine if the local government suddenly lost the land revenues and there are no alternative tax revenues or income sources to replace that. And if Chinese households say the house price has, uh, has fallen down and some people will be on a kind of negative assets, you know, they, are, they own, own banks, lots of mortgages, and uh, the actual market value of their property cannot cover the cost, it, it would be a huge impact on the household balance sheet. And uh, to be honest, at the moment, I think, you know, if you have the money, If you put into the banks, there will be inflation, your losses will be just to be getting uh, less and less every year. If you put in the stock markets, it's too risky. So housing market remains a primary investment for Chinese households. According to some of the surveys, I think housing accounted for like 70 to 80 percent of all Chinese household wealth in, in the country. So it's it's very difficult. And even for the banking, for the banking, of course, the Chinese Central Bank or the banking regulators in the last Almost like ten years is trying to say to tell the banks, you know, control your exposure to the property. Do not lend directly to the property developers. If this is a this is a home buyer, look at him whether he is a, he's a first time buyer, really need the house to get married and have a kid, or he is more of an investor. You know, if it's a second house, then uh, raise the rate, raise the mortgage deposit. But there's no way to control this. Money can keep flowing to the property market because. For the banks, it's relatively easy. You know, if you lend the, lend the money to the property market, there are at least some collectors, there are some houses that are visible. If you lend it to a small business, you know, the, the guy's business doesn't go very well, and the bank will take lots of losses. So for the local government perspective, from the Chinese households perspective, and then from the banking perspective, this property is a tough. Very, very tough issue to, to, to handle. And now the government, it seems it's really a test for the, for the government, how determined you are, you know, you're willing to solve this problem. And in China Evergrande is a very, very good case to test the resolve of the, of the Chinese government. Are you going to really seriously like let it go down? You know, if, if you are a property investor, you, if you buy into it, you know, it's an investment decision, you made the wrong decision, you take the you take the losses. Or if the bank, you know, you lend so much money into that single property developer, it's your own problem. So you have to like show those losses. And this, for the local government say, you know, there's the land revenue will no longer be a permanent source of your revenues, you know, find a better way to lo- grow the local economy so that your fiscal situation can be more sustainable. Can China really do all these things? It's all open questions. So it's very interesting to see what the government will do in the coming weeks or months.
2: Can I ask you, Joseph, how did China allow the debt size of Evergrande to get this big without finding out there's a problem? Was it a fragmented regulatory system that left things lie during these years?
1: Well, I think uh, China Evergrande is uh, is basically exhausting all the channels to borrow money. And we, if you look at the balance sheet, on the balance is, by the end of June, it's almost like 300 billion U.S. dollars, which is 2.95 trillion yuan. That's already a mind-boggling figure. And then off the balance, there's another estimate. According to Ching, there could be close to 1 trillion or even more than that. So this is almost like 3% of China's GDP. That's a huge state number. So everyone is asking the question, like, how can one single company accumulates so much debt. And I think the model is very clear. It, it, it is a debt financed development model. And China Evergrande has played it to extreme. For instance, it will borrow the money to get the land. And then, based upon this land, it, it will start to build up projects and again use these projects to accumulate debt. And then it also takes money from the potential home buyers. So another layer of debt. So for China Evergrande, the debt level is like. It's not from one single source or a single layer. It's almost like borrowing from every stakeholder. According to latest reports, it has even some debt owned to the local governments because it didn't didn't clear all the uh, land purchase bills uh, from the suppliers, uh, from the banks, is uh, from the uh, from the home buyers. Yes, you're you're right. It seems like the regulators not doing a very good job in spotting this this problem and also. Last month, the PBOC, the Chinese Central Bank, and the Chinese Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission uh, summoned uh, China Evergrande for talking. Say you have to pay attention to your risks. I think it's a little bit late. I mean, this kind of talking should happen way before then. You know, uh, China Ever- Evergrande started to show signs of trouble.
2: So, I mean, there have been whistleblowers over the years um, suggesting Evergrande um, some seas crisis or signs of that. How do these noises get ignored?
1: as long as the property prices are keep rising, these should, shouldn't be problem. You know, the, the party can go, <laughs> can go on as long as, uh, as the prices are not falling down. So it's the same you know, kind of household uh, metaphor. For instance, you own a house and you borrow lots of money. But if if your apartment, if your, your flat, the value is uh, increased by like 30%, you can find it e- very easily to cover your debt. But uh, however, the, the, the problem will emerge when, you know, the price stopped rising. So every dollar in the debt are real. Like you own the bank, the bank wants to for amounts of money to back. But your assets is actually inflated. You can't find the buyer to accept the price you are you, you are charging. That's exactly what happened to China Evergrande today. I mean, China Evergrande, on paper, it's sitting on uh, 3.2 trillion yen assets. So mm-hmm. which means it still has billions of uh, assets more than its debt. But the problem is no one is going to accept these kinds of prices. You look at the head office in Hong Kong, they are trying to sell it to another uh, state-owned property kind of conglomerate. But, you know, it's if you it ask a very high price, the other side, the counterpart, are not willing to pay that much because they know that you are in trouble and we are the only potential buyer, so why should I pay the premium for the price? And it's it's happened like on thousands or even like uh, tens of thousands of these projects in a small city, uh, there's a China Evergrande project. And, you know, you try to sell it to say it's worth $3 million. But the the investors will not accept it. Maybe the fair value should be only one uh, million. So. If you calculate that, then China Evergrande is in deep trouble because all these assets, A, it's hard to sell, B, even if it can sell, the money raised cannot be enough to cover the debts.
2: So you mentioned how Evergrande has exhausted all channels to borrow money in China and also overseas channels. What does this tell us about the boss of Evergrande, um, Xu Jiayin, or in English, uh, yan about his political connections in China and not just
1: with the elite, uh, also with local governments? Uh, well, Mimi, I think this guy, this person has two names already speak a lot, like his uh, Chinese name is Xu Jiayin, and he's coming from Henan and uh, you know, he has, in some public occasions, he mentioned like how poor his family was when, when he was back in, in Henan. He lost his mother at a very young age, then he started his career as, uh, as a worker in a steel factory a, and a pretty hard, hard job. But in 1992, after Deng Xiaoping said, we have to embrace market economy, so this person, this ambitious young man in a little rural town in Henan decided to try his luck, and he moved to Guangzhou, which is the most promising economic land of China. And then he started to make his fortune and his property empire. And the name of Hui Ka is actually the Cantonese name because he has such a deep relations or close relations rubbing the the shoulders with uh, Hong Kong property tycoons. Also, if you pay attention, he is actually a a Hong Kong permanent resident, I think. He is one of these uh, members in the um, uh, election committee because he is a CPPCC member. So automatically, he is uh, one of those elites. We can see that he is certainly well connected, you know, in the South, he is among the uh, Hong Kong property tycoons, playing cars with them, playing uh, yachts with them, uh, having these uh, private jets and the decadent lifestyle. And on the other hand, he was a guest at the Great Hall of the People, you know, even in the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, he was one of the very few Chinese private business owners that actually showed up in Tian- Tiananmen. Of course, he took the chance to spread the picture as well. So you can see this, this person is, uh, is, uh, is uh, extraordinary in building up relations and uh, um, managing all these, uh, all the, all the, all these uh, different kind of uh, stakeholders. And even look at him like he has trying to set up China's most powerful soccer team. He is venturing into mineral water. I mean, he's doing lots of di- diversification. So it's quite interesting like, to say like, he, at the end of the day, is also a product by China's raw development area from early 1990s to today. People are rewarded by their ambitions. People are rewarded by their risk-taking. You know, they continue to push the, the end of the envelope to exhaust all the resources they could possibly have and to build up their personal uh, wealth empire.
2: Xu Jiayin, or Hui Ka Yan, also have a third name, Zhou Xin, which is the Brother Belt. He's a symbol of capitalistic excess at a time when President Xi Jinping is trying to introduce the Common Prosperity Campaign. So what a timing it is for Evergrande to run into a crisis like this.
1: Mimi, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. The Belt brothers coming from the famous picture in front of the great Hub of the people. And one time he was uh, at, uh, attending uh, this big conference and uh, reporters tried to doorstep him asking some questions. And so he just uh, ran away and in a very, very uh, strange kind of expression. And of course, the most eye-catching on that picture is uh, Hermes Belt with a symbol of luxury and uh, uh, extravagant lifestyle. And certainly he is. I mean, he has lots of gossips about how luxurious his uh, li- personal lifestyle is. For instance, in his latest uh, uh, leaked hotel accommodation list saying, you know, he, he doesn't want any male approaching him apart from his uh, bodyguards and a butler, personal butler. And then he never never willing to spend five seconds to waiting for the lift. So they have the back office operating the, <laughs> the lift. So when the moment he approaches the lift, the door will ding, will open. So he don't have to, to wait. And also he prefers in his room like imported uh, Japanese fruits, you know <laughs> he certainly has high standards for these kind of food. And when he sleep he uh, every sign of uh, light has to be covered <laughs> so with, with black cloth uh, because he cannot withstand these kind of uh, dis- distractions. So, yes, it's uh, um, he to some extent re- represent a whole kind of new, China nouvelle uh, the kind of social class. They coming from a very humble backgrounds, and for reasons unknown, they become incredibly rich. And then they don't hesitate to show off their wealth. And maybe ten years ago, it's absolutely fine. You know, if they li- like uh, luxury goods, and they can sometimes they can even being a pioneer in lifestyle, you know, which bottles of water is, uh, is better or which handbag is uh, in fashion. But in these days, when the Beijing is highlighting the concept of a common prosperity, all these things are becoming, you know, unacceptable, basically, or at least, like, morally, it's... Uh, Triggering. It, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's questionable, and it's, uh, um, it's an issue. They have to do something, and then at this moment, you... Borrowed so much money, as I just said, you know, nearly three percent of China's GDP to finance your extravagant personal lifestyle. This is totally unacceptable. This is a message I, I think not only for Hui Kaiyin himself, but also for the whole uh, new rich of the Chinese uh, society. And this is uh, not the end. This is uh, this is the beginning of and an I guess the crackdown will just uh, continue on these uh, extravagance.
2: So Joe Xin, what is the end game? for Evergrande.
1: Well, Mimi, let's go back to your first question, will this be a Lehman Brothers? And uh, my take is that it will not be because China has this kind of experience in dealing with uh, uh, hugely indebted private conglomerates. You know, we just uh, look at uh, H&A Group, which has huge Almost a similar problem as uh, China Evergrande. When at its heyday, we still remember HNA came to Hong Kong and then say, you know, getting to the land auction saying, I will just uh, pay 50% above the highest price on the table, so no one going to bid with me. So this is a, this is a, this is a way. But now you look at HNA, all these uh, ownerships are being wiped out. So it's completely a new company now. And then there are some haircuts, there are some write offs, and there are new investors, of course. And for China Evergrande, I guess a similar model will be taken. Some people, especially the U.S. bond uh, investors, I think they will have to face uh, very deep haircuts. And for these uh, tens of thousands of Chinese uh, homeowners who actually pay the money to China Evergrande, I think the local governments and the central governments may find some way. To help them at least you know, get some money back or get the flats that uh, are supposed to be theirs, and for suppliers, for private suppliers, they could have been bailed out by the government money because they are small and uh, it matters to livelihood of the people. But for big state-owned suppliers, for instance, like huge construction companies, and maybe they have to take uh, take some losses because everyone everyone has to in, in this game has to shoulder their own responsibilities, and that's the principle. So. It's not going to uh, say bring down the whole Chinese uh, economy tomorrow, or <laughs> it's going to be the meltdown of the Chinese banking system. But this process will be painful in the long term.
2: But what we concern the most is how are these uh, housing projects um, that have been built are going to be paid for and finished? That would be something we worry the most, right?
1: Well, this is a uh, um, this is actually by case by case. I think for China Evergrande, they make very clear their priority is to make sure that all these. Uh, Unfinished construction projects can be finished, so that the houses can be, uh, you know, given to the uh, home buyers, or even to use these uh, finished projects to get uh, over from the from the banks. Uh, in extreme, very extreme situations, for instance, like in a city. The China Evergrande project cannot be finished, and there will be thousands of uh, household trying to demanding their money. And that's that's I mean that's not even new in, in China. These kind of stories happen again and again. So if it's uh, just a, uh, just the one uh, individual case, I think that's uh, totally you know manageable for, for the for the local governments or for the for the banking system. But for most of the for, for instance, if you, if the project in, is in Shenzhen, I don't think they have to worry, to worry too much about it. You know, but most
2: it, of them are in tied to second to third tier cities
1: yeah it's it will be like handled by the by the by the city authority, the home buyers, and the local banks. Uh, if the past experiences can be a reference uh, for China, it's always always like the all the stakeholders sitting together and there will be someone uh, from, the, from the government and try to balance the the shared losses let's say
2: and stability always comes
1: first yes of course. <laughs>
2: So, Zhou this is all inside China, but you also talked about uh, foreign investors in China, you know, getting a bare haircut. What if I tell you I got a really bad haircut and that cost me US $20 billion, and I'm never going to go back to it. So what does it mean for foreign investors who have exposed to Evergrande?
1: Well, it's certainly a bad lesson for some of these uh, investors. I mean, for the specific case, of course, there will be losses, uh, but you have to look at the bigger picture. I mean... For the foreign investors, they have been in China for the last, like, 40 years, and maybe this, this, of course, this is a huge loss, You can write it off, uh, it's uh, hard to swallow, but that's, uh, you know, that's a reality, and then they can make money in other uh, other projects. That's how it worked in the uh, last, like, 20 or 30 years. For instance, uh, the biggest exposed banks, BlackRock, HSBC, all having lots of, uh, uh, you know exposure to Chinese Chinese market not only China Evergrand so if one batch of us dollar bonds get get sold and not every dollar can be taken back they can always cover the cover the losses from other uh, other more profitable uh, investments but yes it is an interesting question because maybe after this after China Evergrand there will be more risk assessment about uh, investing into Chinese uh, especially Bonds issued by Chinese uh, private enterprises. So they will demand kind of higher uh, interest rate, higher coupon rate to justify the higher risks, which means uh, Chinese companies may find it at least a temporary, uh, you know, more difficult to raise money from the uh, dollar market.
2: Zhou Xin, so this is noon Thursday that we are talking right now. What is the next timeline for Evergrande?
1: Well, it's, uh, this is really hard to say because it's now all kind of unexpected things. So any day, any moment can be like a new announcement from China Evergrande. And more importantly, people are really waiting for, uh, for the Chinese government to give any signals, like how deep Chinese government wants to get involved. And uh, so far, I don't think there's a clear answer or clear plan. That's why all the Chinese official media almost like keeping completely Quiet or silent. It's the only thing we can see from the state media is saying, "Oh, this is not going to be a huge problem. This is not going to uh, bring down the, uh, the the whole Chinese economy." And that's possibly true. And on the other hand, it's also trying to manage the expectations a little bit. So this is a this is going to be a long-term process. So uh, we are just uh, seeing the beginning, and no one is going to know how it will end but no matter how it will end it will be very very interesting I can guarantee you
2: yeah thank you so much for this interesting interview you shared with us and we look forward to bringing you back to tell us more about this intriguing story thank you Mimi thank you That's all we have for you on the ongoing Evergrande crisis. Well, I know at the start of this podcast, I promised we would have a better idea of what might happen next. This is as much as we know right now, and it's late in the day here in Hong Kong, and I can tell you the journalists on the business desk are making coffee because it is going to be a long night for them. They will be following the latest updates on the Evergrande story as they happen to SCMP.com and you will see them posted on Twitter at SCMP News or on the South China Morning Post Facebook page. Thank you for listening. My name is Mimi Lau. See you next time.